Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, we are delighted to have David Benatar rejoin us on the show. Our previous episode was about the meaning of life. And today we're going to be talking about um, the second sexism um, based on uh, the book written by Professor Benatar. Uh, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Imagine a world in which the following were true. For centuries, and in some countries still today, young women, but not young men, were conscripted into the military and forced into combat. The overwhelming majority of victims of non-sexual violence were female. There were countries in which females were liable to, ju to judicially inflicted corporal punishment while males were exempt. There were countries in which girls were caned in schools while boys were not subjected to corporal punishment. In liberal democracies, democracies genital tissue of some female infants would be removed without anesthesia while similar treatment of male babies were prohibited. In developed countries, girls and women were dropping out of school and university at higher rates than boys and men and were earning fewer degrees. Following divorce, custody of children were usually awarded to the fathers, where prisoners of one sex were sometimes guarded by guards of the other sex. The law would be sympathetic to privacy complaints of male prisoners, but not of female prisoners. Male life expectancy were longer than female life expectancy and the vast majority of those imprisoned were female and almost all of those subjected to capital punishment were female. What would feminists say about such a world? So David, it's a, it's a fantastic thought experiment because um, obviously what you're trying to establish is that we have such a world, but inverted. Um, so my question is, do you think that if all of these observations are true of men, that it implies that there is sexism against men? And I ask that in the context of the claim that feminists make that um, there is sexism against women. I draw a distinction between uh, disadvantage and discrimination and wrongful discrimination with sexism being a ver version of wrongful discrimination. And it's entirely possible that some of the disadvantages that males experience are not the product of, uh, of discrimination or of wrongful discrimination. I think that uh, many people often make the reverse error. They make the mistake of thinking that whenever women are disproportionately represented in undesirable positions or uh, insufficiently represented in desirable ones, that it is automatically an indication that there is sex discrimination going on. I think we need to be more careful than that and look at when it is merely a matter of disadvantage, uh, when it's a matter of discrimination and when it's a matter of wrongful discrimination. And I think at least some of the cases that I've described uh, in the actual world rather than in the imaginary world are instances of sex discrimination. So I'm interested in um, your empirical examples. So your claims about specific types of disadvantage or discrimination or sexism that men face that women don't. Um, so one of those is conscription, um, that men are more likely to be conscripted. And another is um, circumcision or genital mutilation without um, anesthesia. So I'm, I'm interested in whether or what, what type of, of disadvantage, whether it's disadvantage or discrimination or wrongful discrimination um, in those two cases. And I'm, I'm interested in those two cases specifically because some people argue that it's justified that men are conscripted more than women because perhaps men are stronger than women. And it's justified that men um, go through a circumcision rather than women because men um, suffer, suffer certain uh, problems if they're not, uh, if they're not um, circumcised that women won't suffer. So for example, men who are not circumcised have a higher rate of HIV infection. Um, and some people claim that it's more um, it's, it's more hygienic to be circumcised. Uh, whereas with women, um, I don't think there's equivalent claims. So perhaps there's reasons for these inequalities and so they're not discriminatory. Good, I think we need to do that kind of analysis for all of the examples that I've discussed in the book, not just with those two, but let me focus on those two given that you, you've asked about them. So I think it's quite clear to anybody who looks at this that men are being discriminated against uh, through conscription and being forced into combat. The question you've asked is whether this is an unfair form of discrimination. And there are people who have argued that given the differences between the sexes, this is not unfair. I don't think that many people would hold uh, the parallel view 
when average differences between men and women would, would favor men and, uh, and disfavor women. So let's imagine somebody says, well, to be a firefighter, you require a certain level of strength. Uh, since men are stronger than women, we're just going to exclude all women from becoming firefighters. And I think they'd appropriately reject that line of reasoning because if there really is a certain level of strength required, then you need to assess whether an individual has that level of strength. And what you may find is that although there are more men than have it than women, it's certainly not going to be the case that the distribution is such that all men are going to be stronger than all women. So if that is indeed a, an actual requirement for the job, then we need to test individuals against that requirement. So I would say something similar in the case of conscription, that there may be certain qualifications necessary to serve in particular roles in the military. And insofar as those are real qualifications, then we need to assess individuals uh, along, along that, those requirements in accordance with those requirements. But the military is a diverse organization which requires a whole range of uh, capacities and, and roles. And it's certainly not the case, I think, that uh, all females are going to be unsuitable for all of those uh, roles. So on the circumcision question, there are some people who want to claim that circumcision is itself a form of discrimination against males because they think that it's categorically wrong to perform this kind of surgery on non-consenting infants, if we're speaking about infant circumcision. Uh, my own view in assessing the empirical evidence is that there are some benefits to being circumcised, especially as an infant. Uh, it's not obvious to me that they are so powerful that there's an obligation on parents to circumcise their sons, but I can certainly see how it would be reasonable for parents to make that decision. So when I point to an instance of second sexism in this context, I'm not referring to the mere fact of circumcision. What I'm referring to is that practice in the absence of anesthesia. Now that was once thought justified because it was thought that neonates do not have a sufficiently well-developed neurological system that they can feel pain, we now know that is not the case. We know that neonates and in fact, even fetuses at advanced stage of gestation are capable of feeling pain. And I think that under those circumstances and given the fact that we have ready forms of anesthesia that could be used, uh, it is a form of sex discrimination that this is not used on males. When uh, it's all genital cutting is entirely ruled out in many jurisdictions. Of course, not in all. There are some places in the world where very radical genital surgery is performed on girls, and there I think girls are worse off. And so that's a form of the first sexism. But if you look in the West, traditionally that uh, form of female genital cutting has been prohibited. And even when in places like Seattle in the US, when they wanted to come up with a form of female genital cutting that was comparable in its severity to the male form, there was a, an overreaction to that and a complete prohibition. There were federal prohibitions that were introduced to forbid even those very modest uh, interventions. So I'm curious about um, a distinction that you haven't made, which is between um, intentional and unintentional discrimination. The reason why I'm interested in that is because in the circumcision case, someone could argue that there is an intention to circumcise boys, but there's not an intention to cause them pain. And in fact, as you say, in years past, the, you know, the view was that these boys could not experience pain at this very young age. So if there was any pain, it was unintentional. The intention is to circumcise, not to cause pain. And so perhaps the view could be that um, there is not wrongful discrimination, even in the pain sense, because, well, that's not being intentionally performed. Well, first of all, I do think that discrimination can be wrong, even if it's not intended. Feminists often point to that kind of problem, and I agree with them about that. I agree that you can have a societal structure that works inappropriately to the disadvantage of females, and it is wrong that it does so, even though nobody is intending that particular outcome. So think, for example, about gender roles, which might uh, constrain uh, the choice, uh, the choices of girls and women in particular circumstances. So uh, it's not that anybody is intending a particular outcome, let's say, in terms of the distribution of the sexes between uh, different professions, uh, but uh, it is caused through a, 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 society, a social construct like a, a gender role. So I agree with feminists here that it doesn't have to be intentional. 
but the problem with intentions is that there can be there can be some difficulties in working out when you do have the intention and when you don't have the intention. And uh, when the pain is sort of inseparable from the thing you're intending to do, then it's sometimes hard to say that you're not also intending. And even if you're not intending, it may be that there's a kind of reckless disregard for the inevitable uh, side effect of what you do intend to do. In your book, you talk about uh, two other cases where, where men are, are worse off. Uh, the one is that men are much more likely um, to suffer corporal punishment, um, I suppose, either historically as part of a, a, a legal system, so people were caned, uh, or as part of um, a school or parenting situation where they, where they were hit by their parents or their teachers. And then the other case is where men's bodily privacy is taken less seriously than that of women. So the way that bathrooms are designed is such that there are open urinals uh, or that uh, showers are, are not enclosed um, and that you might find this either in the way that gyms are set up or, um, as you alluded to, uh, in the case of prisons. So the case of corporal punishment is simple in some ways because there's some jurisdictions where it is permitted for males and prohibited for females. And then you have a pretty explicit form of discrimination. What some people want to say is when you find that boys, let's say, are subject to more corporal punishment uh, than girls, even when it is permitted to inflict on both, that that is attributable to more bad behavior on the part of boys. Now, again, it's hard to disentangle these things. I think there's similar problems on the other side when we're looking at disadvantages for females, but it is not implausible to think that boys might be on average behaving worse than girls. And that might explain part of the differential in the infliction of corporal punishment. But it's unlikely that it's only part because it's probably the case that if you did have that different distribution of behavior between the sexes, that there would then come to be an expectation of that and then a sort of social reinforcement of it through gender roles. And so my guess is that at least some of it is attributable uh, to, uh, to things like gender roles and to differential ways in which boys and girls are gonna be treated even when they are behaving equivalently. There's quite good evidence of that sort of thing in the criminal law, uh, where in some cases it's prohibited to inflict corporal punishment on males. But even if we're not speaking about corporal punishment, there's good evidence that at every node in the judicial system, uh, women get a, an easier deal than men do on average, on average. I'm not saying they're not, they're not exceptions. So we need to try to disentangle these things. It's often not easy to do, which is why we can't assume that the absence of parity equals the degree of discrimination. But the same point applies when you find women unrepresented in desirable circumstances, and they're not represented according to their, their proportion of the population. On the question of privacy, again, they're gonna be differing views. Some people wanna claim that women actually have a greater interest in bodily privacy than, uh, than men do. Uh, if that's true, it's true as a generalization and not true of every last woman and every last man. And so again, I would think that we ought to try to treat people as individuals. So if you're looking, let's say, at the prison context where you've got cross-gender supervision, that is male guards supervising female prisoners and female guards supervising male prisoners, uh, some people are going to want to argue that the interest of female prisoners in having their privacy protected against male guards is greater than when we, when we flip it around. But again, I don't think that you can make that claim across the board. And if there are accommodations that you can make for female prisoners, the very same accommodations could be made uh, for, for male prisoners. And so I think that we ought to treat that, uh, those cases more alike than, uh, than, we, than we currently do. By the way, the, the case law on this sort of subject in the US clearly shows that even when female guards are behaving in quite appalling ways with regard to male inmate privacy, like pointing to them when they're naked and laughing at them, that the courts are not sympathetic to that. Uh, they're not sympathetic to the, to the inmates' interests. They protect the guards in those kinds of cases. Whereas when the tables are turned and you've got male guards acting in equivalent inappropriate ways with regard to naked female inmates, then the courts are much more likely to come to the aid of the female inmates. And I think that's, uh, that's inappropriate. It's, uh, it's unreasonable. It doesn't take account of differences between individuals, which we are trying to take account of in all kinds of other realms.
So when we talk about sexism, um, it seems that this could occur in a couple of different ways. So the one is in personal interactions. You could have um, someone treating someone else as inferior on the grounds of their sex. And then the other kind of claim might be that there's something systematic that's going on, that society is structured in a way um, that makes it uh, discriminatory against a particular sex. Do we have both of those situations um, in the case of discrimination against men? I think we do. It is a move that some people want to make to suggest that the discrimination against women is systematic, whereas against men it's not. But I think it is pretty systematic. If you look at these wide array of practices, and if you look at the most plausible explanations for what underlies it, it looks pretty systematic. Some of it is the flip side of gender roles that would restrain women in certain, in certain situations. And so I don't deny that women are also the victims of sexism. Uh, or that these different forms of sexism are interrelated. I think they are. Uh, so my view here in wanting to highlight what I call the second sexism is not to engage in any kind of denial project about the disadvantages and discriminations that, that women are subjected to, uh, but just to recognize that there's another side to the story that is regularly overlooked and inappropriately overlooked. So I wonder whether the response is going to be something like the following there is sexism against women and so there isn't sexism against men so they see it as perhaps a zero-sum game your opponent um and and it's a war between the sexes if the men are winning then it can't be the case that men are suffering and that we should even think about men suffering well i don't think it is a zero-sum game and i think if you understand the nature of gender roles you're going to see why it's not a zero-sum game because if you have a if you have gender roles, uh, you're going to have let's say the idea that men ought to be stronger. Well, the flip side of that is that women ought to be weaker, and uh, that is going to redound to the disadvantage of men in some situations and of women in other situations. So I think that there's a perfectly good explanation for why we would expect gender roles to play out to the advantage and disadvantage of each of the sexes under different circumstances in different situations. But the very idea of confining people to gender roles is, uh, I think, a discriminatory and a systematically discriminatory idea. So is there a sense in which people equivocate between a discriminatory practice that's ongoing and one which was historically going? So if we roll back in time to 100 years ago, most people at universities would have been men. Um, we now find that more women are graduating from universities than men. But the claim will be that men have some kind of historic advantage, and on that basis, um, we should take their plight less seriously. Well, they may have advantages historically in certain realms, but not in others. I mean, would feminists, for example, say that the next time conscription is necessary, we ought to conscript only females rather than males, because historically males have been worse off? I think that'd be a preposterous idea and it wouldn't rectify any kind of injustice because the men who would have been subjected to the earlier conscription would have been different men from the ones who are now 18 years old or 19 years old and, and liable for, for military service. So I, I don't think that that historic picture is, is a way to address this. I mean, you touch on something quite important here, which is this idea that we can't carry down um, the sins of the, of the fathers onto the sons. In other words, just because um, you know, men of today are in a particular situation and let's say their forefathers were in a different situation, we shouldn't treat them alike. We should rather treat them like individuals. Well, yes, I want to put a qualification on that because I do think that sometimes historic injustices can roll on down through the generations and it may be that compensation needs to pay, be paid later. But I don't think that gender discrimination is typically of this kind. So if you speak about sort of material advantage, well, that would, in our time, work to the advantage of both sons and daughters of people who have uh, the historic legacy of being privileged. So you distinguish between um, disadvantage and discrimination. And I just want to understand exactly what you mean by discrimination. Well, uh, so discrimination, I think it requires some kind of agent or societal structure. I don't think that discrimination is something that just happens in brute nature, as it were. So one example of disadvantage would be 
let's say, the condition called hemochromatosis. Now, males have a, a greater liability to hemochromatosis. This is a condition in which iron accumulates and damages the organs. And one reason why they're at a disadvantage here is because they don't have a regular bloodletting as women do through the menstrual cycle. And so uh, women are going to be less liable to this condition than males are. That's just a disadvantage. And similarly, there are going to be disadvantages for women, the disadvantages in the absence of healthcare of death during childbirth. Uh, the, the, and also, if you, took, if you look at the issue of menstruation, women are going to have a greater liability to uh, anemia, iron anemia, than, than men are for precisely that reason. So you've got a biological difference here, and it leads to advantages and disadvantages for different sexes under different conditions. But it'd be absurd to, to say that men or women are being discriminated, discriminated against in, in, in that kind of raw situation. Now, if you didn't do anything about it, then there might be an element of discrimination. So let's imagine women are dying in childbirth and there's something that you can do to reduce those rates and you don't do that. Well, then there might be a discriminatory element creeping in. But the brute natural fact that men and women might be liable to different diseases and uh, different conditions is not in itself a form of discrimination. So that seems very important because mm. what is often cited by people who are promoting social justice causes is inequalities. So they'll cite a statistic about an inequality that exists on some dimension between two groups. And they say, well, therefore, that means there's discrimination involved. Well, my sense is they do that asymmetrically. So what they, they, if they notice that with respect, let's say, to women being disadvantaged relative to men, then they leap to the conclusion that it is, in fact, discrimination. But when you see it on the flip side, then they don't leap to that conclusion. And in fact, I think, as I said earlier, we ought not to leap to that conclusion. There are sometimes perfectly innocuous explanations for why you will get a skewed disadvantage in a, in a given area. And so we do need to probe further to see whether these are instances of discrimination and whether there are things that can be done about them. So one of the distinctions that you draw is the idea that there should be an agent playing a role and that we don't think of, let's say, nature as an agent. And so we can imagine the sexist individual who has a particular intention when they want to treat someone worse off on the grounds of their sex. And then you talked about society doing that. Now, I suppose some of the claims are that society doesn't intend on treating people in a sexist way. It's just that they've, you know, innocuously... Uh, set up structures that have some kind of differential impact uh, and that amounts to the systemic discrimination. Um, how does this play out uh, in the case of discrimination against against men? Well, again, so even at the level of the individual, although I do think you need to have an agent there, I don't think that the discrimination needs to be intentional in order for it to, to be discrimination. I think there can be unintentional discrimination by individual agents and also by a society or societies. And uh, I would say that applies equally to males and to females. So one of the things that you that you write about in the book is how there might be certain things that affect men that we don't talk about. So when we talk about rape, it's almost exclusively thought to be the case that women are the only victims of rape um, and that men are the rapists. And you describe in the book the idea that there might be many victims of male rape, specifically in prisons, but in other areas as well, but that there is a further taboo um, in the sense that to out yourself as a victim of rape as a man um, would would be uh, seen as, as you know, a, a terrible thing to do. So you'd rather not, not say anything at all about it. So not only have you been raped, but you're also silenced by society. Yes, I think that is case. We do know with regard to rape of females that it's significantly underreported a small proportion of women who are raped actually report that and lay charges. Uh, but from the evidence that we have, it's the case that uh, it's the underreporting when males are the victims of rape is even greater than that. And I think that's partly attributable to, to taboos. It's partly attributable to uh, inferences that people are worried will be drawn from their making their report if they're a man. Uh, so I think they are expl explanations for that underreporting. Does it matter who the perpetrator is? So in both of our rape cases, mm. um, the majority of the perpetrators are going to be men. So does that undermine the case that men are being discriminated against if the discriminators or the abusers in this case are themselves also men? 
I don't think so. Uh, we wouldn't say that in, in uh, we're talking about a case of, ra of race. So if you have people of one race inflicting violence on people of the same race, and you can't see me here, but let's put race in scare quotes because of the problematic nature of that, of that category. Uh, we don't think that it is less important as a result. It's a social ill that, re that requires attention. And uh, if you think about what's so-called black-on-black violence, sometimes people will say, well, even if it's one uh, so-called black man inflicting violence on somebody with the same profile, there may still be racist elements in the broader so societal construct that is resulting in, uh, in that violence. So we shouldn't be less concerned about the victims merely because the perpetrator bears some kind of superficial uh, resemblance uh, to, to the victim. So I imagine the feminist is going to still hammer on about this point and say, well, even if it is the case that uh, men suffer the, the list of um, injustices or inequalities, and in some cases, discrimination that you've listed, women suffer more. And because women suffer more, just by highlighting that men suffer, you're uh, moving the spotlight away from women and women deserve that spotlight more. So I do consider that argument, it's one of a number of arguments that I think are quite common for at least certain feminists to advance. It's uh, what I call the distraction argument. The idea is don't distract us from the more serious problem. And I suppose I'd say a few things about that. The first is it's not obvious to me that the one problem is more serious than the other in, uh, in certainly contemporary uh, liberal democracies. It is true probably that women are the greater victims of sexual violence than, than men are. When I say probably, it's because there is some data that if you include the sexual violence that's going on in prisons, let's say in the US, that that differential may be radically reduced. But let's just grant for the sake of argument that in many places, women are the, the, more often the victims of se sexual violence. It's still the case that almost everywhere, males are more often the victims of non-sexual violence. And we don't hear that distinction drawn. So people go on and on about ending violence against women. They don't say end sexual violence. Well, sometimes they do, but the broader message is let's end violence against women and girls. And I mean, that's a perfectly noble, a noble cause, but why are you restricting it? Why are you not speaking about ending violence more generally? So if males are among human beings, the disproportionate victims of non-sexual violence, well, that looks like it's something that ought to get attention. And I would broaden the case further. Think about the amount of violence that's inflicted on animals. It's not clear to me that the species matters either. That's also something that we should, that we should oppose. So I find this idea of a ca campaigns to end violence against women unduly narrow. If you oppose violence, you're gonna be opposing it in, in all of these instances. And just think about what you would say if you called for an end to non-sexual violence against males. You had 16 days of elimination of uh, non-sexual violence against males. Well, I mean, how long would that last? Well, how much traction would that get? Uh, I think people would radically, would rapidly say, well, uh, yeah, we recognize that, if they, if they weren't even granted that they'd recognize their problem. They said, but women are also victims of non-sexual violence and surely we should broaden the net. And I would say, absolutely we should. So it seems to me that there could be two kinds of feminists who care about the rights of women. So there are those that say that all human beings are equal. And so they're egalitarian in that sense. And they say women have been treated in bad ways in the following manners. And we should take steps to ensure that women are brought up to an equal level of treatment. And the other kind is the more partisan sort. So the person who says, look, I only care about women. Um, I, I don't care about men, they're not valuable. Um, and so when you're identifying the crimes against women, uh, you're doing it with a particular agenda in mind. Well, yes, that's exactly a distinction that I draw in the book between two different kinds of feminists, egalitarian feminists and, and partisan feminists. I just don't think there's a principle, uh, a morally defensible principle underlying the, the partisan feminist view. If, if, if they're just interested in defending women's interests in a kind of partisan way without any underlying moral principle, well, then it's open to other people to, to take different partisan lines. And I don't think that that's a productive way forward. Uh, this also ties into the second part of the answer that I should have given to, uh, to Jason earlier. And that is, if you want to oppose violence, it's much better to have a kind of broad coalition against this rather than 
focusing just on one set of, uh, of victims. If you focus it more broadly, then you can show that everybody has got something to gain by an alteration of this culture. You're going to get more people on board. It's just going to be a more principled and a pragmatically better approach to a problem. So perhaps the reason why that isn't done is from a narrative perspective, um, plus some claims about human psychology. So um, humans identify with other humans that they think are similar to themselves, but they may not identify with an abstract event where the human placeholder could be filled by anyone. So if you say, well, we must stop violence against women and children, then uh, X looks at his wife or his daughter and says, ah, yeah, no, that makes sense because I identify uh, my wife and daughter as, as women and children. And, and so this is a significant cause. Um, but if you say we should stop violence full stop or stop violence against humans full stop or stop violence against all creatures full stop, and um, perhaps there is not as the leap, the identification is not as simple. And so just from a psychological perspective, uh, those campaigns are less effective. Not clear to me at all. I mean, the way you've presented it, you're imagining this message being given across to a man and he can now imagine his wife and daughter and said, yes, makes perfect sense for them not to be subjected to violence. But what about violence against him? Surely if he can relate to them, he can relate to himself and relate to the idea that would be inappropriate when he's, out walking in the street that somebody assault him, somebody kill him. That's an idea I think anybody can relate to. Well, doesn't it make, don't you think it would be more effective if you had an anti-male violence campaign? In other words, a, a campaign against men being the victims of violence. Don't you think he'll identify more strongly with that than an anti-human violence campaign? I don't think necessarily, no. I think if you said we've got a violence problem and we ought to be doing something about it, uh, men, women and children are the, are the victims of this, that uh, we should address this, that would be something people can entirely relate to and understand. I, I th what I should say is I'm, I'm not convinced how effective these campaigns are because just trying to make people aware of this problem is, is I think, very unlikely to do something to the minds of the kinds of people who are going to perpetrate this, uh, this violence. So I worry that these campaigns are not very effective, but insofar as you're trying to highlight a problem, I would highlight the broader problem rather than arbitrarily some subset of it. So it seems like, I think part of what Jason gets at is that there's a moral development that occurs. So people often think about uh, morality in terms of themselves, then maybe their family, then maybe their community, their religious organization, their nation. And eventually we kind of build up the moral community to include, you know, human beings, and then let's say all uh, sentient beings. And that seems that that's the trajectory of, of liberalism, you know, is to say that, you know, everyone matters, not just those that look like you or, you know, speak your language or worship the same God as you. Um, and what's funny is that it seems to be the case that we've carved out this exception when it comes to men, where we say, yes, everybody matters except for men, um, and that it's become taboo uh, to raise these sort of topics. Well, I think it's quite easy to have the broader view, uh, and it's not clear to me how that sort of that sort of concentric circles of, uh, of care is applicable in this case for precisely the reason I mentioned to Jason earlier. If you've got a man to whom you're trying to direct this campaign and you're trying to get him to think differently about the world, uh, he is uh, presumably at the center of that, uh, uh, of that center of concern. And so he can relate to himself. He can understand why it would be bad if he were the victim of violence. I don't see why uh, that couldn't appeal to him. So some people will make the claim that the concern about men being discriminated against could only come from so-called men's rights activists. And really this term appears to be used as a slur um, and as a way of saying that these kinds of concerns are fundamentally illegitimate. How do you respond to that? Well, I think there are some people who self-identify as men's rights activists. So it's clearly not the case that this is always used in a pejorative sense. But I think you're entirely correct that many critics of those who recognize the second sexism want to dismiss them as what they call men's rights uh, activists. And I, I have a somewhat complex view about men's rights activists. I don't view myself uh, as a man's rights activist. I view myself as somebody de defending the equality of the sexes. And that will sometimes call 
for advocating for the interests of women, and sometimes it will call for advocating for the interests of men. I think that term, men's rights activists, lends itself to the same sort of error that a women's rights activist uh, would, uh, would lend itself to. And that is to say an exclusive focus on just one of the sexes. So I would want to resist that label. Many people have wanted to label me in that way. And I think for precisely the sorts of reasons that you have indicated, that that I don't think is a fair indication of my position and I would want to resist it. And I would also want to caution against men being interested only in the, in the rights of men. I think uh, we, we all need to be concerned about gender equality and take a principled line on that. The perpetrators of violence are male in most cases in certain types of violence, um, for example, sexual violence. And um, in other types of violence, perhaps men are the uh, main victims of that violence. Um, now, if you, if you combine those empirical facts with um, the view that every, every member of a group is responsible for the actions of every other member of a group to some degree, then you get the conclusion that the feminist um, wants. So the conclusion that they want to, to, to promote is that, well, don't, don't take pity on men. My heart bleeds for men. And, 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 and you know, we don't really care about men because they are the perpetrators of the crimes that, that they are suffering. Um, and so, and so the, the suffering that they, that, that they have is less important um, than women's because women are not the perpetrators of those crimes. But that sort of group attention is, I think, entirely inappropriate. One's not responsible for things done by people who bear superficial uh, resemblances to oneself. Otherwise, you can just broaden that. You can say, well, look what the humans are doing to animals. I got to have no, I'm going to have no care, care or concern about human beings because human beings as a whole are doing all kinds of atrocious things to animals. So I'm going to just stop providing health care and I'm not going to look after people when they need help and I'm not going to be compassionate towards them because of these terrible things. It's a ludicrous idea. Uh, people are responsible for what they do. Sometimes we bear an element of responsibility when we could have done something to prevent somebody doing something. Uh, but this idea that our entire groups of people are going to be responsible for the actions of some subset of the group is a very dangerous idea indeed. I mean, we don't use that in the criminal law, for example. We don't think, well, some male committed this rape, so it doesn't matter which one we arrest and which one we, uh, we try and which one we imprison and punish. It's a ludicrous idea. Is there some sense in which we can say that some differential treatment is justified um, because there is a good reason to treat people differently based on some inherent characteristics that they have. So, for example, if we're trying to make a realistic um, film about Malcolm X and we're casting people for it, we might say that, um, you know, blonde women cannot, uh, you know, audition for the role. Uh, because we're trying to make a you know a realistic portrayal of Malcolm X, and that feels like a justifiable form of differentiation. Are there ways in which we can justify differential treatment between men and women uh, in other instances? I think there are. So, if, for example, a health insurance company is going to provide coverage for routine mammograms for women over a certain age, but not for men, that doesn't look to me like it's an instance of of wrongful discrimination. It's a form of discrimination. You're discerning between two categories of being and you applying different standards there. But given relevant differences between men and women, it doesn't look to me like that's a case of wrongful discrimination. Now, if there were a particular man in whom a mammogram were indicated, medically indicated, and the doctor wanted to order this, uh, this test and the medical insurance company said, well, we're not gonna cover it because this is a man. Well, now this has become a matter of, uh, of sex discrimination because you, you're treating this man differently uh, when it's arbitrary, arbitrary to do so. Uh, there's an indication in his case as to why he should get the mammogram. So do you think that an absence of representation is generally an indicator for um, discrimination? I think it sometimes raises questions, but sometimes they're gonna be very good explanations immediately apparent for why that's not going to be the, the whole story. And uh, then we need to pay attention to that. Uh, or why it's perfectly innocuous. And so we need to pay attention to that. So um, feminists, I imagine, in their response to the book, push this representation line. And they'll say that, okay, men are overrepresented in certain types of populations. They, 
They're overrepresented among the prison population. They're overrepresented among victims of violent crimes or non-sexual violent crimes. But men are overrepresented in lots of other very desirable populations, and those outnumber the um, undesirable populations in which they're unrepresented or underrepresented. And so overall, women are, are discriminated against in a worse way. Well, have they done the maths on that? So it's, it's not clear to me. If you look at the homeless, disproportionately male, the prison population, it's something like 90% is obviously going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but we talk about massive majorities of males. Uh, if you look at, let's say, the legislatures in the Western democracies, we don't have 90% uh, males any longer. You might once have had that, but you get much greater female representation. So it's not clear to me uh, that the maths has been done on uh, on that kind of claim. And what I more often see is a complete neglect of instances where males are disproportionately represented in undesirable circumstances. I don't hear feminists complaining that the vast majority of the homeless population is male. In fact, what you're more likely to hear is a focus on the small proportion of homeless people that are female and pointing to all the difficulties that they face. Now, I'm not denying for a moment that there might be special gender-related difficulties that homeless females face, but that can't be our only focus if we're interested in gender equality. We also have to look at the gender-specific reasons why you have more males who are homeless than females. So I think there's an asymmetric attention here from people who claim to be interested in gender equality, and it seems to me to be disingenuous. So why? Why is there an asymmetrical attention span for the two? Well, I don't know. I think you need to ask them rather than me. And, uh, and part of what I'm sorry about is that there's not been more feminist engagement with my arguments. I think what they've roundly done is ignore it. Not all of them. There have been some feminists who have given sober and balanced attention to these arguments, although they haven't discussed them and responded to them very much. But there have been others who've just dismissed them out of hand or actively misrepresented what I've said. Some people, it seems, have not even read what I've said, but are dismissing the arguments because they've got some preconceived idea of what it is I, they think I'm saying. Uh, so, I mean, I can hazard guesses as to why they're doing that. I mean, one possibility is that they really are only interested in the interests of, of females. And so they're not interested in the other side of the story, in which case this is quite revealing about their, their actual agenda. So I think it's a great pity that feminists are not sticking to the principles that they say they are committed to and giving a more kind of even-handed opposition to gender inequality. I had an interesting chat with uh, Rebecca Tuval, who considers herself a feminist philosopher, and she was um, part of a book called Ethics Left and Right, which is edited by Bob Fisher, and wrote... Um, there was a sort of two people writing on the on the issue of feminism and and both writers um, deliberately engaged with your work and she said to me that there has been a change since the book came out that it's no longer tenable for feminists to say that you know men aren't suffering that a lot of them now have said we have to accept that there is enormous amount of disadvantage experienced by men um, but nonetheless, uh, women's issues are still worth worth engaging with. And I thought that it was interesting that there was that kind of move to say, you know, if you become a denialist about the suffering of men, well, you delegitimize, you know, the entirety of your work and people will take you less seriously when you're talking about the claims of women. Well, let's be clear about two possible ways in which you could say that. I mean, one is something which I think feminists have for a very long time said and said in, also in response to some of my early arguments on this topic. What they've said is, yes, men are suffering, but that's all just the product of patriarchy. So they want to dismiss it in that way. They think this is just really the cost of being male. And I think that that is an inappropriate response. First of all, it seems to me that uh, the idea that we have patriarchy in the, the Western world at the moment, uh, in the 21st century, uh, that is sort of an article of faith on their part. Now, I'm not arguing that men are not disproportionately represented in, let's say, uh, government, in, in, in the legislatures, for example, in the executive. I'm not denying that. But uh, you need to be clear about what you mean by patriarchy. You can't determine that a society is patriarchal simply because it's got that disproportionate number of males in the lead, because you could e equally look at the disproportionate number of males who have fallen by the wayside 
who are the underdogs of society and take that as the marker. A much more realistic picture is to look at the overall society and see how advantages and disadvantages are, are distributed. So if the claim is simply that, yes, we acknowledge male pain, but it's just a matter of a product of patriarchy, and therefore we don't need to pay any attention to it as a form of a second sexism, then it's an old criticism and not a new one. Uh, the other interpretation, which I think is the one that was intended, is that there is now a recognition that uh, males suffer, that it is a form of, of sexism, a second sexism. Um, I'm not being aware of that. So if there are those moves, then that's a, a welcome development. My general impression is that there's just been a, a widespread refusal to engage these ideas. There've been, um, there've been people who've pointed out that if you look at distributions of, of capabilities among men and women, women are more closely um, banded in the center of the distribution and men are more widely distributed along the distribution. So a male distribution of IQ, for example, is more bimodal than women's. Women's is more normally distributed. And so you might see a similar distribution in terms of resources or power. So men are more likely to have um, significant power in society and very little power in society on the two ends of the distribution. And women are more likely to be centered in the middle. Now, perhaps um, that is a problem for women because if there are very few women at the top of the distribution, even if on average the two have the same amount of power, let's just assume that for a moment, and I'm not saying that is true, but let's just assume for a moment that is true. Um, if there are more men at the top of the distribution, isn't that a problem for women generally? Well, I don't know whether that's true in all instances. I think it's going to depend on what forum we're looking at. It may be true in, in government, but it might not be true. Now. It's certainly not true in other areas. If you look in psychology, for example, that's a disproportionately uh, female discipline. Or if you look in education, it's a disproportionately female uh, discipline. So it's not clear to me that this is something that's true across the board. And it may well be true that if you, the minority sex in a given area, that there are going to be certain uh, problems that, uh, that you confront. I think there'll be parallel problems for males in, in, in other areas. So being a male nurse comes with all kinds of prejudices. And uh, that's partly to do with the fact that males are underrepresented in that uh, profession. It's also got to do that when there are male nurses who behave badly, they now become a symbol for uh, male nurses in general. Uh, because people who have prejudices about, about male nurses. So there are going to be problems in different areas for different sexes. Sometimes those will be the result of underrepresentation, And we need to address that in ways that we can. But it's not obvious to me that the appropriate way to address it is to ensure strict gender parity in all areas. Because now you're engaging in a very robust form of social engineering. Can you imagine the world in which you say 50% of nurses have to be male and 50% of uh, pre-primary teachers have to be male? I think a product of that was that you'd, you'd get inferior nurses and inferior uh, primary, primary and pre-primary school teachers because you'd be putting such heavy store on the sex of the person, you'd have to overlook other actual qualifications for the job. So I do think that the way to respond to those sorts of problems is to try to address the upstream issues where there are gender roles that are inclining girls and boys to different choices, try to address that upstream. But once people make their choices, we, we have to live with those. We can't sort of socially engineer it and say, well, you may have a lesser desire uh, to be a, a pre-primary teacher, but we're going to make sure that they're 50% males in pre-primary teaching. But the pushback's going to be, okay, there's certain areas in which men are overrepresented and certain areas in which women are overrepresented. And in both, in both cases, they're desirable, but the pushback's gonna be, they're not equally desirable. There's certain areas that are more important than others. So for example, in legislature and in um, business leadership roles and in roles that involve high income and um, high resource accumulation, men are overrepresented. And those areas are much more important because the accumulation of resources allows you to do a lot of different things in life in which, for example, um, being overrepresented in the psychology forum 
won't allow you to do it. It doesn't, it doesn't have as many ends that that means can, can reach. Again, I think we need to think in a more sophisticated way. So if you're a male and you get conscripted into the military and you get badly wounded or killed in the prime of your life, that's a very serious disadvantage. And if you're comparing that, let's say, with the woman who is not subjected to that and goes on to a profession in which she's earning but not earning at the highest levels of, uh, uh, of the society, that's arguably a much better life story than uh, the young male who dies. The other factor is that there's a value judgment in this. So you can say that being out there in uh, the professional realm, earning top dollar, that that is the, the greatest height that one can attain. And other people might say, no, that's, there's nothing valuable about that. Well, there's not, that's not the greatest value. There may be something valuable about it, but it's not the greatest value. I mean, arguably, rearing children is about the most meaningful and profound thing that you can do. Most jobs that men go out to don't uh, compare in any way in terms of meaningfulness with, uh, with raising a child and raising it well. If you're the cog in some bureaucracy, you're not doing anything as meaningful as somebody who's rearing a child. So there are value judgments to be made here about what's better and what's worse. So it seems there's also a misperception about the true facts. So for example, if you ask people about the gender pay wage gap, they'll say it is the case that women earn 76 cents for every dollar earned by a man. But when you dig into the data, it turns out that really what you have is a prejudice against mothers. So men and women who don't have kids uh, that are in the same positions tend to earn about the same. Um, but mothers tend to earn less, partly because they drop out of the workforce. And I suppose one of the questions is, in other words, is it is it justifiable uh, to have this kind of differential outcome? You don't have it, for example, for fathers. So um, fathers, I think, are there's maybe a different expectation about what their role is in a family, uh, and maybe also a sense that they don't have the rights to remain at home, uh, that it would be the kind of thing that they would be treated badly for doing, that there'd be a prejudice against that. Um, so we have these differential outcomes. It's not purely on the grounds of sex, but rather on the grounds of a particular role taken by a sexed parent. Good, but this is exactly a scenario in which it's hard to disentangle what is a natural choice that people are making and what is a socially imposed gender role. And I would suspect in this case that there may be differences between males and females on average in their child rearing desires. We can't certainly discount that possibility. If you want to discount that possibility entirely, then you also need to think that the different levels of criminality between males and females uh, must also be discounted, that, uh, that that's, there's no biological basis for that at all. And then you're gonna to have to go down that route and embrace the implications of that. So what I would say is there's probably some basic biological difference here in terms of the desires, but that it is then reinforced through gender, gender roles. And we should certainly try to do what we can to undo those gender roles, not to set expectations for people on the basis of their sex. But if they then make a choice, that's a choice that they make. And I don't think that we should be engaged in the kind of heavy duty social engineering that tries to correct for that. Now, does that mean that there shouldn't be some attention given, let's say, to maternity leave for people who uh, want to have children? No, that, that's not an implication. I think that maternity and paternity leaves are both leave is both are both things that we ought to ought to consider. But people make choices, and if you make a choice to exit from the uh, your professional sphere for a number of years, they're going to be uh, there's going to be a price attached to that, just as if a male decides to do it. Now, it is unfair if the pressure is more on the females than on the males, but the question is, where do we fix that? Do we fix that at the point of the company, let's say, or do we try to fix that upstream? And if we're going to try to do those fixings upstream, are we going to do it symmetrically for the sexes or are we going to do it asymmetrically? So, David, I'm curious about what the reaction of feminists has been generally. We've discussed specific types of reactions that they've had, um, but generally the reception of your book? It seems to have had a mixed reception. There was quite a lot of popular interest, especially at first in, in the press uh, around the world, uh, both the, the written press and also radio. 
some of that was completely uninformed. There were pe some people who were mouthing off, dismissing my arguments and, and attributing, to me, attributing to me views that I don't hold, like the view that women are not discriminated against. Well, you, you don't have to read very far in the book to see that I explicitly deny that position. I recognize the first sexism. Uh, I just think that there's a second form of sexism as well. So some of it was sort of willful misconstrual, but there were also uh, quite charitable readings. There's been a much smaller response from the academic realm. Some of that has been from feminists and some of it has been quite reasonable. They've said, this is a book that feminists need to consider and, and respond to. And I've appreciated those responses, but there've also been responses which have been very dismissive. The largest response my, is, is just ignoring it. That's my impression. And I think there's something deeply unfortunate about that. And I think it might suggest a, a, a sort of refusal to engage the deep issues here because a lot, lots of what feminists do and what they say turns on their responses to some of the things that, that I've written about. And I've just not seen them engage that other side. Is there some sense in which feminism as a movement has changed quite dramatically over the years? So if we think about first wave feminism, you know, it's about the, the right of women to vote and they've been, you know, disenfranchised. Um, and, you know, later it's about uh, workplace discrimination. And there were genuine ills that feminists had very good reason to be concerned about. And I think some of those ills still persist just not very much in the developed world. So, you know, women in uh, the Middle East uh, and in parts of Africa are often treated in abominable ways, mm. but we don't see current feminists uh, raising a spotlight on those issues. We hear very little about female gen genital mutilation or about um, women that are, that are forced into marriages. Um, what we often hear about are these kinds of microaggressions. So these minor slights that happen in societies where women really have, as a group, never had it better uh, and are prospering and are, you know, really are quite well represented in, in government, in business, in academia. Um, but we've seen a kind of rise uh, in complaints about the way that, that women are treated. Can, is there a way to try and explain this, this tension between uh, the way that women are better off in the world, but at the same time that there are uh, heightened sensitivities to the way that they're treated? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that it's true that feminists are entirely ignoring the condition of women in those parts of the world where women really are treated abominably uh, in, a, in a very systematic and widespread way. There are some feminists who do give attention to that, and I think that's entirely appropriate. And I also don't want to reject the idea that feminists are not allowed to speak about their own society, even if the problems facing both men and women are much smaller problems than in some foreign dictatorship or totalitarian uh, state. So I don't think that's unreasonable per se. But it does strike me often as odd that you will get complaints about very minor issues like uh, gendered language when you've got quite profound forms of discrimination against males. Once it can involve the deaths of people and not the deaths, extreme pain and suffering. Uh, so that asymmetry, I think, is, is worrying. It's not that I think feminists must keep quiet about the smaller things. I think as one makes progress and things get better and better, one needs to look at the smaller and the smaller things in order to make further improvements. I think in principle, that's fine. But if you're worrying about what you call sexist language, and I'm not talking about slurs and things like that, but the use, let's say, of chairman rather than chairperson or chair. If, if you're worrying about that to the exclusion of people being conscripted on the basis of their sex, and sent off to war where they suffer psychologically and physically and are sometimes killed, uh, then it, it looks like you, uh, you, you are misdirecting your attention. It, it's not that you're not permitted to attend to the smaller things, but the bigger things also require attention. Since you, since you wrote the book 10 years ago, um, there's been a, a very recent debate around what counts as sex and who counts as a man and who counts as a woman. Um, if we're looking at um, men as the sort of second sexism, is there a, a third kind of sexism that affects people that don't fit into those binary categories? Uh, and, and how should we consider that, that problem? 
Well, we often speak about men and women, but clearly there are people who don't fit into either of those categories. And uh, I don't deny that there can be forms of discrimination and prejudice against uh, people of that kind. There are going to be complicated arguments we're going to have to consider about whether, let's say, uh, people who are born female and then identify as male are now to be treated as victims of a second sexism or a first sexism or some third sexism. Uh, I'm less worried about that kind of terminological question than I am about whether there's unfair discrimination going on and what we can do about it. So I think we ought to, wherever we find it, oppose it. It doesn't really matter whether it's the first or the second or, or a third.